Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Let's get into the word. Father, I am committing this time to you. Um, Lord, this word came out of just, just some desperate prayer this last week. And not because I was just put on the schedule at the end of the week. This was at the beginning that you were birthing something in me. And Lord, I'm just asking for the grace to be able to communicate it with your heart. I pray that my voice and my actions and my Italianness, as we like to call it, would literally be put aside. I mean that. And your voice and your groaning and your passions could be heard. That there would be a, a reverb. Uh, something would come through the spiritual realms that would hit our hearts. And it would speak to us way beyond our head and our knowledge. It would speak to us in our souls and our spirits where deep would call unto deep where the call of your spirit would cause reactions and responses in our spirit. Whereas you would call out, we would call back. We would say, come, Lord Jesus, come. That there be something of a groaning that you would implant inside of us today. Holy Spirit, you're the only one that could do that. We don't want knowledge. Lord, I don't want just teaching to have teaching. As I read through the book of Acts and you study through it, you see Apollos who came to Ephesus and he teached so brilliantly he taught the things of God accurately. He was skilled in what he had to say. And yet when he got done, there was only maybe 10 or 12 converts to the gospel. And then Paul comes and he finds those 10 or 12 converts and he says, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't even know there was such a thing. He lays his hands on them, the Holy Spirit falls and the Bible says the whole city was turned upside down. It wasn't just 12 converts anymore. People were coming out of their houses and burning their magic and their books and, and giving up everything to surrender to the will and to the heart of God. Lord, thank you for the apostles. Thank you for knowledge and teaching. But Lord, we want a move of the Spirit. And that's what we ask for. Even if you just got to interrupt the sermon, just shut it down and say, time to just do prayer, time to wait in the presence of God, time, whatever it is, we yield it to you. God, we thank you, and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to start this sermon a little bit differently from our normal Sunday mornings. Um, I'm going to talk about the shield of faith and the sermon series that we've been in in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to unpack all of that in just a little bit. But before we begin to do that, what I want to do is I want to circle back and I want to go to a very famous Old Testament passage of Scripture that carries a lot of weight. It carries a lot of punch for what we're dealing with as a nation right now. And any of you who have been in the church for any length of time are probably already guessing where I'm already headed. I want to go to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. And I'm going to read verses 13 and 14 together. And this is God, and he's answering the prayer of his people after they... They dedicated the temple. And this is what he says. He says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, 
If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, I've heard a lot of debate about this scripture over the years. I've heard Christians actually say to me that this is an Old Testament promise and this does not apply to the New Testament church. But take that out of the picture just for a second and think this all the way through. Think about when the church, what happens when the church responds or, or does what this scripture is calling the people of God to do. Think about what the natural outflow happens, what, what naturally takes place. When the church makes the decision of, you know what, uh, the, the, the most important thing that we're going to do together is not just coming into this house just to get some fellowship, although that's awesome. It's not just to come into this house to hear another sermon, although Pastor Michael, thank you for preparing that, that's awesome. But when the church begins to say, no, the, the most important thing that we're going to come and do together is we're going to start seeking the face of God. We're going to come into this house and we're going to engage corporately in the place of prayer with one another. We're, we're going to come out and be a part of prayer meetings. And we're going to come out and we're going to spend time in our face before the Lord. And not only are we going to do that, but we're going to start humbling ourselves. We're going to st start putting away all the marketing schemes and the brandings and the, the, the internet flexing that we're doing on the social media sites to be able to get people into the seats, to be able to get butts to sit down. We're going to put that all aside and we're going to stop changing the gospel to try to draw people in. But what we're going to begin to do is we're going to put that aside and we're going to begin to seek after God. We're going to call on him. And not only are we going to call on him, but we're going to make the very core of the church not about what we could receive from God, but we're going to make the core of the church of being conformed more into his image. We're going to go out and invite people into this, and then we're going to begin to be a part of it together. And we're going to put away the immorality. We're going to put away the things we shouldn't be watching on the TV. We're going to put away all the idolatry of the stuff that we're chasing and the comforts that we want. We're going to lay those things down. And we're going to fully surrender to God. Let me ask you, what is the natural response? What is the, the thing that's going to happen when the church begins to do that? The Holy Spirit starts showing up, no? And the Holy Spirit begins to come with power and with anointing. And he begins to flow through the body of Christ. And he begins to affect people. He affects families that we're in contact with. He affects our city, our neighborhoods, and even our nation. And what does he do? He brings healing. I mean, we see illustration after illustration, example after example of this all throughout the Bible. Go to the book, just for a second, of Ezekiel, and think through, think through the Ezekiel temple, where the angel comes, and he's literally walking with Ezekiel on the side of the temple, where the water is flowing out of the east gate, and he's measuring the cubits as Ezekiel is passing through the water, and the water's getting deeper. The water's getting stronger until it begins to empty out into the salty marshes, and what does it do? It begins to cleanse out the salt, and it begins to heal the water. Think of Revelations, where the book actually tells us that there is a river coming out from the throne of God that is going through the majestic city. And it's flowing through the city, and it's feeding the trees of life on either side. And, and the leaves of the trees of life are for the healing of the nations. Think about Jesus, who gets up on the final days 
during the Feast of Trumpets and he gets on the, the temple steps and as he gets there, he begins to call out as if he is blowing the trumpet of, as the high priest himself and he calls out and what does he say? He says, he who believes in me, he who trusts in my name out of his belly, out of his heart is gonna flow rivers of living water. Now why in the world would God want us to have rivers of living water flowing through us? Well, through the examples that I just gave to you and so many more than in scripture that I don't even have time to get to, those rivers are supposed to bring healing to the nations. And as I was reading all this and I'm studying through 2 Chronicles and I'm putting together this message and I'm in the process of praying, God began to ask me a question that came on me like a ton of bricks. And this is what he began percolating in my own heart. If it is true that the healing of my nation is dependent solely upon what the people of God choose to do and how they respond. If it is true that the healing of my nation has more to do with the church than it does with a political leader or political party that is in power, then here's the question. Then what is my role? How am I a part of this being an individual that is part of the body of Christ? What is my role? What is God putting in my hands to be able to contribute to the restoration and to the revival of America. In fact, let me do this. Let me ask the question this way, the way I wrote it down, which is much more poignant. But look at it, I'll put it up on the screen. Rewritten, this is what I wrote. Am I living a life and prioritizing my life in a way that I'm contributing to the healing of my nation? That changes things in your Christian life, in your Christian walk, doesn't it? Before, my surrender to God, my obedience to God was pretty much just about me. It was about my relationship, my friendships, my, my family. It was, more about, it was more about just what was in my inner circle. But when you start understanding that your surrender to God and your obedience to God actually has a much larger impact than you, than you grasp, that what you choose to do in your relationship with God ultimately contributes to whether or not we see revival in America, whether or not we see a restoration that takes place in this nation, that puts a sobering, a sobering weight on how we deal with the Lord, doesn't it? We're gonna answer that question together in just a little bit. But before I do, like I said, this, this sermon is a little unorthodox in the fact that, I, that God has me in a place where I'm connecting two thoughts and I have to begin to establish both thoughts before I can begin to bring them together. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna take everything that I just shared out of 2 Chronicles 7.14 and the question that I just began to ask. We're gonna put that aside and we're gonna go back to Ephesians chapter six. And now I wanna talk about the shield of faith and I wanna talk about what is it and how we actually use it because it's the understanding of the shield of faith that's gonna help us in our response to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. In fact, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Let's go through verse 10 through 18, which we've been reading every week in this sermon series. And let's begin to dissect this together. So verse 10 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you could take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, 
Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around the waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the Lord's people. Now, as I've been studying this and going through Ephesians chapter six, going through the armor of God, reading commentaries like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and his book on Christian soldier and all this type of stuff, I was actually surprised. I was shocked to find out that this shield that's being spoken about in the Roman army was actually about the size of a door. It was, it was five feet tall and two feet wide. And it covered you from the tip of your head all the way to the bottom of your feet. And because the shield was so large, this was what was so amazing to me, the Roman officers, the soldiers, actually didn't carry the shield with them into the battle. In fact, they kept them on the side and they went and got the shields at a specific time of the warfare. The shield was different from the helmet, from the breastplate, from the, from the belt, from the gospel, from, from all these things that you're putting on. It was different because you wore all those other articles, but you didn't go get the shield until it was a specific time and a specific reason in the midst of the warfare. For example, the Roman army would sometimes besiege a fortified city. And when they would come to a fortified city, they would push up against the outer wall where they would begin trying to press through that outer wall where they would be able to make a breach so that they could begin to get inside. And when they came to a fortified city and they began to besiege it, what they did was is they stopped the warfare just for a second so all the soldiers could go and get the shields. Because the soldiers would carry the shields as they were fighting against the outer wall of that city to be able to protect them from the rocks and the fiery arrows that the opposing army on top of the wall was shooting down at them. See, you didn't need, listen to this, the shield of faith until you began to take ground and push against the enemy's territory. It was when you made the decision to fight. It's when you made the decision to move forward. Then in the midst of the battle, wearing all the other armor, you took a pause just for a second and you went and you got the shield. And the shield was used to do what? It was used to stop all of the flaming arrows and the flaming darts that the enemy is shooting at you from his stronghold. Now I've heard a lot of pastors talk about these flaming arrows. I actually read some writings from Martin Luther who used to call them Satan's flaming arrows. And most pastors that I've heard preach or even the writings from Martin Luther, they will all agree that these flaming arrows are actually doubts that Satan shoots in your mind, he shoots in your heart just at the right moment to get you to question God's faithfulness, to get you to question God's goodness, to get you to question his word. And although I believe that is 100% true and that is completely right, in my prayer time, in my study time, I began to realize that there's more to it than just that. Think about the words just for a second. Flaming arrows, or you could say it this way, fiery arrows. Where else have you ever heard the word fiery in the Bible before? 
well, Pastor Michael, let me show you. Okay, First Peter chapter four, verse 12, let me show you. I wanna read you two passages right here talking about fiery, ready? That word fiery. He says this in First Peter chapter four, verse 12. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal some translations say trials that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And Revelations 3, 14 through 18 says to the angel in the church of Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the rulers of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need anything. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you could become rich and white clothes to wear so that you could cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Listen to me, this is important. Whenever the Bible speaks about fiery, when it talks about anything with fire, really what the Bible is speaking about, I want you to get this, is it's speaking about seasons of suffering, seasons of trial or persecution for the church. And here's the question. Why does the Bible call suffering fire? Why does the Bible here, even in the book of Revelation, talk about a refiner's fire? And as I'm writing and I'm putting my notes together and I'm thinking through these types of questions, I had to go back all the way to my Italian heritage one more time to go pull out an embarrassing life story from my family to be able to lay a foundation to be able to answer that question with us together. So, so bear with me as we go back. I grew up in a household, I don't know about any of you, who love to eat steak. My dad was a steak eater. He literally go to Costco and he'd fill up his work freezer where he worked just filled with steak and he would cook steaks almost every day. He'd eat like one steak a day. And my dad, this is important, when my brother and my dad would eat a steak, they would always eat it, you ready for this? Black and blue. Anyone ever cook a black and blue steak before? Anyone ever heard that term? I'm just curious, black and blue? All right, a few people. So when you cook a black and blue steak, some of my friends from Kansas know exactly what I'm talking about. They, they're like, we raise cows. We know what that is. When you do a black and blue steak, what you do is you take like a hot iron skillet or you take a hot iron pan, you put a little uh, um, oil into it, you season one side of the steak, and then this is what you do. You throw it on one side and you let it literally sear for 30 seconds, maybe a minute, minute 30 or whatever. And then here's the kicker. You don't flip it. You don't sear the other side. You leave that flesh and you don't cook it anymore. You, you don't put it in an oven. You don't put it on a grill. It is still cold when you eat it. And you take it, you put it on the plate. And my parents, my, my father and my brother, they do this to me. They eat the whole steak and then they, they make me touch the bone just to freak me out because it's still frozen. It has ice crystals. I touch it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you do this? It is so disgusting that you almost want to puke. And you can't just go to a restaurant and ask for a black and blue steak anymore. You can't like walk in and say, hey, because they look at you and say, no, 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 that's called a lawsuit. <laughs> We're not that dumb. We know what you're doing. You need money. So you're going to eat a raw steak and then you're going to say it affected you and bring us to the courts and then you're going to sue us for everything we got. So they say, we're not going to do that. So to get a black and blue steak today, the way it's supposed to be cooked, you got to go to the special restaurants. 
You got to go to the restaurant where the owner owns either a construction company or a waste disposal company, one of those. And they have bulletproof glass in the front of the restaurant, which, by the way, my parents eat at. It's named Sam's Steakhouse. They go to bulletproof glass and they eat. And, and it's only those type of people that say, bring the long lawsuit because we know how to take you out. It's those type of people that will cook you a black and blue steak. See, unless you're my dad or you're my brother, an uncooked steak that's never entered the fire has a lot of potential. Okay, this thing could be grass-fed, grade A, Wagyu beef. Like, this is what we're talking about, right? But if you don't take that steak and put it into the fire, if you don't actually cook it, all those fatty deposits and all that flavor will never become what it could become. It never become what it potentially is but can't actually get there because all the flavors locked inside cannot come out. The same is true with suffering. Suffering was referred to as a fire in the Bible because fire is what takes a piece of meat, which is the examples the Bibles give us, or or, and it brings out what is inside of it, and it turns around, and it brings out its potential, Right? Without the meat and without the ore actually going through the fire, then the ore and the meat could be something amazing. It could be, right? But without the fire, without the the so-called refining, without going into the oven, it can only be what it can potentially be, not what it can actually be. Now, Think about that in our relationship with God. Think about the potential that's actually sitting in this room for the kingdom of God. Think about it just like this. Think about all the Bible teaching and preaching that you've had the privilege to be able to sit under in this nation. Think about the freedom that you have enjoyed to be able to own one of these. And you've been able to read this thing every single day. Many of you have read through it once a year, every single year. And you, do you realize that that's not normal for the rest of the world? That, that that is something that God has invested into the Church of America? And then think about the heritage. Think about all the experiences that we've known throughout the centuries that God has sent to this land. How many of you have grandmothers? How many of you have friends in your family or friends that you know who still talk about what it was like to get saved in the Jesus movement, right? All the hippies coming to the Lord off of the shores of California. Or how many of you, listen to me, still family members or friends are talking about what it was like when the charismatic movement came into the Catholic church in the late 70s and the late 80s. I'm a product of that. My grandmother went to a prayer meeting with my mom in a Catholic church with a priest and the Holy Spirit came down and they left speaking in tongues. They asked the priest, we don't know what's going on, but we know the Bible tells us about it. Can you tell us where to go to be able to receive the teachings of the Bible? And the priest said this, this is where the priest said, that doesn't happen in our church, but I'll send you to the Pentecostal church down the street that can explain to you what is going on. How many of you still have friends, family friends, or uncles, or aunts who can say, I remember what it was like to be invited to the Billy Graham crusade, and there we are, up in the stadium, and then the Spirit of God comes down, and the whole stadium came down to the altar call. Think about it. Think about all the teaching. 
Think about all the Christian books, the godly history, the podcast, the Awana classes, the Young Life groups, the Campus Crusades for Christ, the Team Mania, the YWAMs, all the unfathomable, incredible investment God has made into this nation. Think of the amazing potential of the American church. We're like a well-seasoned, grade-A, grass-fed piece of meat. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Unless we go into the fire, unless we experience seasons of suffering, unless we go into the trials, I want you to understand something. All of that potential never comes out. It doesn't become anything. It doesn't do anything. It's locked in there, but it gets stuck. That's why the New Testament talks about suffering over and over and over again. It talks about trials over and over again. And I hate to say this because none of our flesh wants to admit this. Because without suffering, without trials, we cannot grow and be conformed into the very image of Christ. And now I'm going to step on all of our toes. And here's the reality. You will never know any true and lasting peace or joy without being conformed into the image of Christ. Joy and peace doesn't come just from the American dream. It doesn't come from just owning two houses and having three cars and having steady jobs and, know, and being able to get good educations. I thank God for all of that. But you will not find joy and peace there. How do I know that, Pastor Michael? Because I know those types of guys who have millions in the bank and they're suicidal. They have all the toys they get their kids in all the colleges that they want to get them into. And let me tell you something. Their kids are a mess. They're on drugs. They're drinking. They're a mess. That doesn't give you joy. That doesn't give you peace. Peace, listen to me, is not a thing. Joy is not a thing. It is a person. And the more we get conformed into that image, the more that we get connected in our union with Christ, the deeper our peace becomes. The deeper our joy becomes. Okay, now with all that said, let's move on and talk a little bit about the state of the world right now and the state of our nation. Let's have an honest conversation with each other just for a few moments. I had spoken many months back at a Wednesday night prayer meeting and I said something. I said I believe with everything in my heart and in my prayer time and talking with other people who operate in the prophetic and other pastor friends of mine and those in ministry that COVID-19, I want you to get this, COVID-19 has actually started, it has begun a dispensational shift in the church of America, a dispensational shift for the church in the world, which means this, things have changed from COVID on, and they're not going back to the way they were. We have entered into a very new season, and it's a season that I actually like to call, and I'm gonna put it up on the screen so you get this, the season I call the New Testament Babylon captivity. There, yeah, thank you guys. The New Testament Babylon captivity. Now, let me explain what I mean because I want you to understand this and let me work it all out. When the people of God were slaves in Egypt, I want you to understand something, they had no freedom whatsoever. They woke up every day and they were under the reign of Pharaoh and under the reign of the Egyptian taskmasters. And they cried out to God, and what did God do? God brought them Moses, he brought 10 plagues, he led them out through the Red Sea, brought them into the promised land, and gave them over a thousand years without being occupied by any other nation. They just enjoyed complete freedom. 
Until after about a thousand years, they turned their back on God, they got involved with idol worship, and God sent to them the Babylonian ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, with his army that actually conquered Israel, defeated Israel, grabbed them, and took them all the way back to the northern country where they entered back into captivity again. Now watch this. The difference between the Egyptian captivity and the Babylon captivity is this. In Egypt, the people of God had no freedoms. None. But in Babylon they had a bunch of different freedoms. They can literally buy houses. They could plant vineyards. They can even work their way up into the political ranks and be leaders over the nation themselves. But, 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 but. but God gave the power to the ruling class and to Nebuchadnezzar and the other kings that would come and the officials to be able to remove the freedoms of the people of God when they saw fit on their own whim. And you see this all through the Old Testament. You see it through the book of Daniel. One day, it's okay to pray. You can get down and pray three times a day. The next day, that freedom is taken and you can't pray any longer. And if you do, you get thrown into the lion's den. You see that in the book of Esther, don't we? One day, the people of God are fine. They're just hanging out out there and they're doing well and everything is good. Then the next day, there is an edict from the king that says destroy and kill all the juice. One day your life is spared, the next day you're on the chopping block. You see it through Ezekiel, you see it through all the books of the Bible as you begin to go through it. And the church today, listen to me, has begun a new dispensation of entering a modern day Babylon captivity. Listen to me, where we have freedom, but God has given the power to our ruling classes and to our leaders to take that freedom as they see fit. They can remove it like this, and they can reinstate it like that. Now, I know everybody's looking at me like a deer stuck in headlights. You're saying, whoa, how could you say that? Well, look at what's going on. You got freedom of speech till they say otherwise, then that shuts down. How many of you are dealing with vaccine mandates where now your job is on the line? And listen to me, I'm not preaching for or against vaccines. That's not what I'm doing up here. I'm not even getting into that. If you want to get into that, Anthony Russo at elders.com, that's where you go. I'm not dealing with that. I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. But how many of you, your job was secure, it was okay. But if you go against your conscience, either way, whatever you, you're going to lose your job. That freedom has now been taken. And I know what you're saying. Well, Pastor Michael, what about the Constitution? We got a Constitution. Yes, and it's a beautiful document, which I love. Thank God for it. But that document only works under the favor of God. That document does not work if God doesn't touch the hearts of the people to abide by it. If God removes that or he sees fit to give the authority and the power to the ruling class and not through that document anymore, let me tell you something. Things can shift all of the time. And they are. And with the dispensational shift, listen to me, the church has now entered a very difficult season where we're all experiencing some measure of suffering. And as I'm putting this together and I can see your faces, and I didn't even want to preach this. We were supposed to have a guest speaker this week. And God's downloading all this stuff and I'm thinking in my mind, thank God I don't have to preach any of this. Thank God somebody else is gonna take the pulpit. This is just for me. This is just for my family and we'll know what's going on and they'll be dumb to it. And, and, and... 
But as I began to pray, and my heart really began to be really burdened, I started saying, God, you're going to destroy the church in America. You're letting the enemy literally run rampant. Do, do you know most pastors in this city don't even know who's in their congregation anymore since COVID? Things are changing so rapidly. I don't know, you who are on the live stream, I, I know you haven't been back at church. And I, I'm not against that. I'm just saying, I don't even know. I don't even know. Some days I know which families are here. Other days I don't. I, I, I talk to other pastors in the city. They're like, half my congregation hasn't come back. I'm like, well, I have that half. And then they're like, oh, I have your half. And, and everything, is just, everything is just shifting. And, and we're like, what is going on? And I'm praying. I'm like, God, you're destroying the church. If you let this keep going on, there's going to be nothing left. And as I'm praying and I'm burdened and I'm weeping and I'm seeking... I feel God begin to share with me and he began to speak to me saying, Michael, I'm not destroying the church. No, 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 no. I'm putting the church into the fire. I'm putting into the fire because I want to bring out all the investment that I've been putting into these people through generations that have come to that, to this line, to this moment right now. I want to take out all the potential that is in the church of America and I can't get it out any other way. It's got to come through the fire. It's got to come through the suffering. It's got to come through the trials. I mean, think about how many of us, and be honest with yourself. I had to be honest with myself this week. We have heard so much teaching on evangelism. We have gone to seminars. We have gone to classes about how to follow the Spirit, how to be led by the Holy Ghost, how to be able to open up a conversation with somebody on the street, how to lead them through the Roman road, go through Romans chapter 3, show them that they're a sinner, right? We have so much teaching on it, which I thank God for the teaching. I'm grateful for the teaching. But what if, what if the fire of the transgender movement that's happening right now, where you and I, everywhere we go, we're seeing young boys dressed like girls and young girls dressed like boys. I saw it this weekend. You see them at Starbucks across giving you your coffee and they have the painted nails and they have the, they have the mascara on and it's a young boy. And, and you're seeing it from family members and even friends that you know that want to go through transitions. What if that fire begins to break something inside of us where we start sensing the very burden of God. That being in it day in and day out and not being able to get out of it begins to form in us a brokenness and a burden for how lost this generation is that we just don't have teaching about evangelism. We don't just have the potential of evangelism. We actually go out and begin to evangelize. I've seen it. It's coming into me. I'm out at restaurants and dinners and places and I see people and the burden of God comes on me from dealing with what I'm dealing with in the media, in the news, what I'm seeing and I'll stop a waitress and say, listen to me, I don't know what you're going through but you need some encouragement from God. You gotta come Sunday morning, be a part of our church service, sense the presence of God. We're at Springs Church. I don't have a lot of time because you're on a break right now and you're gonna get in trouble but you come. God wants to speak to you. God wants to share something with you. Oh, we've had so much teaching about prayer. How many seminars you've been about prayer? Podcast. We know all the examples in scripture. We know the examples in Acts. We know the Lord's prayer. We know the temple prayer. Gosh, we know how Jesus prayed. We, we know all of it, don't we? So much information, so much potential of what God has actually put inside of us. But what if, 
what if this dispensational shift and the fire that we're all in where freedoms are being taken at any moment and then reinstated and taken and the tug of war, the power right in front of us that we have no control over, what if that begins to cause the people of God to get together and actually pray? What if prayer meetings like our Wednesday night begin to grow from 100 to 200 to 300? What if prayer meetings around the nation begin to outnumber the Sunday mornings? Could you imagine the potential of those prayer meetings? Could you imagine what God could do through the kingdom of God when he could get the people of God that he has trained, that he has raised up, that he has poured into to begin bringing out the investment that he has made? See, I can go on and on and on of what God is trying to do and what God is in the process of doing. Now I'm going to come back to this in just one moment. I'm going to come back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. But before I do, there's one more little disjointed part of the sermon that I have to bring out and then kind of pull it all back together at the very end. So with all that said of the fire. What is a fiery arrow? What is a fiery dart? Well, it's God allowing us to go through the suffering, the enemy bringing things into our lives that God is allowing, that God has permitted for a season to be able to bring out the potential of the church. And with that understanding, now I want to look at the shield of faith just for a moment and the need to bring out the shield of faith when we're in the midst of those types of fires. So I'm going to give you two words of application when it comes to the shield of faith. Are you ready? Two words. Number one, I want you to write this down. Don't be surprised by the fiery arrows or the fiery trials that come into your life when you truly commit yourself to God. Remember, the shield of faith is not needed until you begin to advance and take ground for the kingdom. Until you press up against the enemy's strongholds in your life, in your family's life, in the city, and throughout the nation. See, I've had so many people that have come into my office so discouraged, sometimes even new converts, and they want to give up on their walk with God, and I'll ask them why they want to give up, and they'll say this, same thing over and over. Well, I finally surrendered my life fully to him. I finally committed myself to him. Young people, you need to hear this. I came up to an altar, and I made the choice. Now, I'm not going to live one, wor- one foot in the world and one foot into the kingdom of God. I made the choice now to start walking in Christian disciplines. I'm getting up in the morning. I'm reading my Bible. I'm spending time in prayer. I'm putting away ungodly friends that are leading me into these bars and these places that I don't belong. I'm making the choice to consecrate myself. I'm making the choice even to go on a missions trip. And this is what they'll say to me. Ever since I made that choice, I came down to that altar. I did it in my room or whatever it was. Ever since I made that choice, my life has begun falling apart. I'm getting persecuted at work. I got a call from a doctor and now I have a health situation, right? My family has issues with me. Somebody in my small group, my community group, they were gossiping. And now, now, now I don't even feel comfortable being able to come back into the church. See, when you push forward and you take ground for God's kingdom, when you set your heart to obey the Lord, when you take his word seriously, listen to me, you have to prepare yourself for the fiery arrows, the fiery darts that are about to come your way. Satan doesn't just roll over in the ground and say, well, it's it, they got it. He sends everything he can to get you into a place of utter discouragement. And part of picking up the shield of faith, and this is important, is getting rid of wrong expectations in the kingdom of God. 
I don't come to God, and even though I get his life and his power and his grace, and everything in my life just comes perfectly all together. No, no, no. He says, I work all things to the good. It doesn't always come together the way that you think, but I'm bringing it all together. And if you could get rid of those wrong expectations and set your mind onto the reality that there are some fiery darts and some fiery arrows and some fiery trials that are going to come your way, then that is the first place where you begin to pick up the shield of faith at that moment in the battle. Number two. When you go through the fiery trials, when you go through suffering, don't forget to go and get the shield of faith. Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 25 says this. This is what it says. One day Jesus said to the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and it was all calm. And then this is what he says, watch this. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. Now Jesus didn't ask that question because they had no faith. No, no, no. Jesus was asking that question because he was alluding to something. He's saying, I've been pouring into you as my disciples. You've seen my miracles. You've seen my faithfulness. You have been under my teaching. I brought you into the houses to be able to have meals with me. I've revealed myself to you. I've revealed the Father to you. And I have deposited faith inside of your heart. You have faith. But when he's asking the question, where is it? What he's saying to the disciples is, you're not pulling it out. You got it, but you're not using it. And see, there comes a part and a place in our Christian journey and our walks where we don't need more teaching. We don't need another Bible verse, although I thank God for all of that. We don't need, listen to me, another podcast, another sermon. We, we don't need another Christian book on how to do the next three things. That's not what we need. You know what we need to do? We need to take the faith that God has already invested into us through all the experiences that he has walked us through, where he has healed us and he has delivered us, we have to take the revelations of the books that he has put in the Bible, that he has been showing us in our devotion time, and we need to take those things and we need to make the conscious choice to begin to stand on them, to say, I'm gonna believe what God has already shown me. I'm making the choice not to believe the voice of the enemy. I'm making the choice not to believe my own flesh. Not to listen to the condemnation that says it's all over because I made a mistake or because I failed and now I'm repenting and it seems like God is nowhere to be found. I'm making the choice to stand on the revelation that he's already given me, that he's made a covenant with me, that Jeremiah actually tells me that he will never dissolve this covenant of doing me good. He'll never get rid of it. And if I walk out in the middle of the day and I don't see the sun or I don't see the moon at night, if the natural cycles of nature are taken away, according to the scriptures, God said that is the only time that I will be able to break that covenant with you. If you go out and you see the sun, that means God is with you. If you go out to see the stars, God says, that means I am with you. I have revealed this to you. I have shown you. Stand on it. Take out the shield of faith. Go and get it. And understand that if you're going to commit your life to God, there are going to be trials ahead. I, I actually heard a prosperity preacher once say, this is the truth. This is what he said. 
He said, if you're having trouble in your life, he said, you got health problems, you got financial issues, you got relational issues. This is what he said. He said, then you are not in the will of God. I'm thinking to myself, I was like, wow, the apostle Paul was never once, never once in the will of God. Because listen to me, it was trouble for Paul on that Damascus road when he finally met Jesus face to face. Think about his salvation, think about how he gets saved. The dude goes blind for three days. How many of you like to come to an altar and lose your sight? Right? We'd walk out of that service being like, that church thing is a mess. That's not a God I'm gonna serve. That's how Paul meets God. That's how he meets the Lord. He loses his sight. That's the beginning of his Christian life. Then he gets a thorn in his flesh where he says that's been permitted by the Lord so he didn't actually grow in pride through the revelation that he's been given. Then he goes and he preached the gospel thinking that people are actually going to get saved and they stone him, right? He's left for dead. The other apostles and the other disciples, they raise him back up. He goes back into the city to preach again. He's rejected everywhere. His own friends want nothing to do with him, right? He's left in prison sometimes months on end. And then if that wasn't enough, as if he didn't have enough trouble in his life, then he ends it all by being beheaded in Rome. <laughs> but you know what Paul says? He says, everything that I've ever gained in this world, it's dung, dung compared to knowing him. It's dung. You know what he, you know what he says? He says, through all that suffering, through all the trials that I've ever went through, let me tell you what it has produced inside of me. All that studying of the Hebrew law, all those things that I had through the temple and that I knew, and everything, God began to take that investment and it began to pour out of me. The potential of what he was doing in my life for years began to pour out of me. You know what he said? He said, I don't know about you, but I've actually been up into the third heaven. He says this, he says, I've heard things from God's lips that are unlawful to even speak. He said, he said, I've been through some of the worst, but let me tell you something. What I have received through it far outweighs what I have gone through. And he says, not only have I been through all of this and received these incredible revelations of God where I could sing in the middle of my prison terms, where I could write things about God's faithfulness, being in isolation in a prison alone, where I could write how good God actually is. And I'm not, listen, Paul wasn't writing these things because he knew he was just supposed to write them. There was rivers, rivers flowing through his heart through what God was doing in his life. That's where the scriptures came from. It was the rivers of the spirit of God. And he says, not only did I receive all of that, but now through all of this, I have been prepared the potential has come out to receive a crown of glory. <laughs> what he's saying is, I have been prepared for heaven so I can actually enjoy all of what God has. He needed to do something in here on my walk with him now so that he could prepare me for it then. Wow! Okay. So let's go back, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 24, and let's close. I don't know about you, but every week I come into this place, and every week I keep thinking, it's going to get better this week.
We got through a rough summer. Delta variant is here, but we're through that. Economic crisis, we got through that. This is going to be, this is the season that things start going back to normal in the world. And every week I come in and I find out, nope, nope. And I don't know about you, but I have been praying like crazy, saying, God, we need a revival. Now it's beyond the point. It's beyond the threshold of common reasoning. We can't even reason anymore. We need a revival to come across and sweep across this shore. It's the only way now. We have been brought to such humility. We've been brought to a place that there's nothing left. And as I'm praying, and the Lord has given me this message, what if God is saying, I'm answering that? I've heard that, and I'm going to answer. I'm going to do something in this generation where your jaw is going to drop. But my ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. The only way I can do it is if I could begin to unlock the potential that I've already invested into the church. And I can't unlock it unless I let some fiery arrows. You've been pressing in. You've been pressing up against the end. But i got to let some fiery arrows to come through. Some fiery trials. Some suffering in all of your lives that are gonna to begin to do a work where that potential and that investment begins to come out. And what if God is saying to us, church, I'm not taking this all away, but what you need to do is you need to go get the shield of faith now. I have already given you promises. I have already spoken to you my word. You have to set your mind and get rid of wrong expectations, thinking because I'm a Christian, I'm wrapped in bubble wrap and nothing bad is ever gonna happen. You gotta get that expectation out of your head and you gotta go get the shield of faith. And you gotta start standing on the word that says, I don't always understand what's going on, but even though I don't understand what's going on, God has proven himself time and time again. He's given me enough revelation through the word that I'm gonna stand against these fiery arrows. I'm gonna stand with the shield of faith and I'm gonna walk through this as God begins to answer our prayers and bring out the potential inside of his church. Turn the church upside down on its head where prayer meetings start happening, where evangelism starts going forward. And through that... He says, then I will answer the prayers as you've been crying out like 2 Chronicles 7.14, where you've been humbling, you've been crying, you've been asking, you've been repenting. He says, I answer it through this. Worship team, if you'll come up. I know you're here. You're just hiding somewhere. I know it's barely somewhere, I know. Oh no, they just left me. I surrender all. Just I just I love these guys. Don't they do a great job, our worship team? Give them a round of applause. Stand with me, Springs Church. Stand with me. Stand with me. I'm gonna have an altar time. And my altar time is, I call it a moment of crisis, a moment where we have to choose as the body of Christ. The Bible says, if my people, which are called by my name, there's an if, there's something conditional, there's a choice that needs to be made. God asked me this last week, and he didn't just ask me through just my prayer time and my devotion time. No, 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 he, he allowed me to walk through something. Beth and I just got done with COVID. You guys heard what I went through, heard what our family went through. And we literally thought, we thought, okay, we got through a rough summer. Our kids are back in school. Everything is good. We're great. We're, we're just gonna go forward. Everything is great. 
And then this weekend, we were going to celebrate Beth's birthday because we didn't have time. She, she, her birthday's August 31st. We didn't have time, so we were celebrating this weekend. And I come home on Friday, my wife is in tears. And I said, what the heck is going on? And she says, we got scammed. I said, what do you mean scammed? She said, somebody called me from Chase Bank, and, and that, they had the Chase number, and said there was fraud going on on her card, and asked me to, to, to give them some information to stop the fraud. And, and she gave them the information, and listen to me, and she watched online as they emptied her checking account. Took all her money. And not only that, I started getting text messages that they were about to empty our savings account from Chase. My poor wife, she fell down hysterical. She's just like, this is just nuts. This is over. This is everything. This is everything we saved for our kids, for everything else. And I went to the Chase Bank, and it's incredible. They couldn't help me. They couldn't help me till Monday. We, we asked them to put a hold on the account, but here, and this is the truth, we actually don't know what's left in our savings. We know our, our checkings is completely gone. The savings, we don't know. <laughs> and I remember I was just in my house. I was like, God, we've had such a rough year like gosh and I felt like the Lord just pour himself out over me and I felt like God just speak to my heart and this is what he said he said Michael don't be surprised by the fiery trial don't be surprised let me ask you something I have been pouring into you for years who is your provider your savings account or me I have taught you about this I have brought messages to you about it. You have studied it. Who is your provider? And I remember I just got down on my knees. And we still don't know what, what, where everything's at. We don't find out till tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. It's crazy, right? We, we find out tomorrow. We think everything's on hold and we think everything is fine. We have no clue. And I just got on my knees. And you know what I started doing? I just started worshiping God. I just said, God, you're in control. I surrendered my life to you. All the money we have came from your hand. And if you take it, it's your choice. And if you restore it, that's your choice. Everything I have is yours. Now, I'm not saying I got to that point right away. There was a journey. It was not pretty. I have to make some apologies to bank tellers and everybody else later on. But I, but I got there. The investment that God made started to come out. I say this with love, but I say this honestly. Some in this room, and I want you to hear me, and some online, you're going to lose your job in the upcoming months. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But what if that loss isn't to destroy you? What if God's got a whole plan and he's got everything together? But what if when you lose that job, something that God has invested in you begins to come to the surface like you couldn't imagine? And you walk out of that place and you fall on your knees and you begin to just worship the Lord in front of all your colleagues and your workers. Well, what if they see that coming out of the church? Amen. This is the question God put on my heart as I was praying through our bank account and everything. It's what I felt the Lord say. He said, Michael, I will answer your prayers, but I'm going to do it through the fire. The church has entered into a new season of a Babylon captivity. Freedoms will be removed at a whim. And this is what I felt the Lord say, are you in? Will you let me do what I need to do in your life to bring out the potential of what I've invested all these years? Are you in? And that's my altar call this morning. It's a response to God, not to me. And God's just asking, 
Are you in, Springs Church? Will you let me do what I need to do? Let me cook the steak. Let me bring out the flavor. Let the fatty deposits start to marinate. And if you're in, would you just come forward and say, God, here am I. And I like to just pray together. I like to pray. I'm in. I'm in, God. I'm in. I'm in. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.